Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gluten-Free Voice. I'm Jules Shepard from Jules Gluten-Free and I'm really excited tonight to welcome onto the show my guest, Peter Bronski, who is a, a really fantastic athlete in his own right, but also has recently co-authored a new book called The Gluten-Free Edge with Melissa McLean-Jory. And, you know, with the Olympics just wrapping up and, of course, the Tour de France, one of my very favorite um, sporting events of the year, and all kinds of other wonderful summer athletics, everybody's talking about sports and athletes and athletics and performance-enhancing drugs and things of that nature. So I think this is a really wonderful topic to cover right now, and it's very timely that Peter's book just came out, The Gluten-Free Edge. And I've been perusing through the book, and there's some really fascinating information here, so I'm hoping in the next 30 minutes or so we'll get a lot of that out so that you can walk away feeling like you've got a good understanding of um, gluten in athletics and gluten-free athletes and what's good and what's bad. So without further ado, I would like to welcome you, Peter, to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's um, it's really it's an honor to have you on the show and to get to talk to you. I love having fellow celiacs and people who are um, gluten intolerant on on the show because I feel like you know they bring a, a perspective that so many of my listeners share instead of just commenting on the diet or commenting on the lifestyle. You're living it just like we are, and I think that's great. And especially with your athletic background, I you know I'm really marveling at the amount of uh, sporting events you've done and some really fantastic, uh, amazing events you've done recently. Could you just give a brief, I guess, rundown of the type of athletics that you're passionate about and what you've been doing lately? Uh, sure. You know, my, my latest thing, my focus is on ultramarathon distance trail running. So an ultramarathon is qualified as anything longer than a marathon. And so uh, if I specialize in a distance and specialize, I use that loosely, but um, my preferred <laughs> distance is 50 miles. And so, um, and I prefer to run on the trails in kind of mountainous terrain. So typically, you're out in the mountains uh, for long distances in a beautiful environment, um, and just doing that for a really long time. Wow. Um, yeah, that's 50 miles is is um, something I could not even imagine doing, much less up the side of a mountain. <laughs> So that's pretty <laughs> phenomenal. But I, you know, I was reading in your book, and you have a, a wonderful story in the beginning. Um, which I so appreciate, and I, I shared my, you know, uncomfortable, you know, kind of embarrassing but so very, very true, you know, defining my life at the time story in my book, The First Year Celiac Disease and Living Gluten-Free. And it's kind of one of those things that's uncomfortable to talk about, but it's also one of those things where if you are sitting as a, as a now-diagnosed celiac or someone living um, with gluten sensitivity, you totally understand where you're coming from. And I was reading your story, and I think it's really useful to understand where you came from in your gluten-free journey as as sort of a reflection of how that fits in with you being an athlete. And I know you were very athletic all your life, but at one point you could barely run one and a half miles on a flat um, terrain. So could you just sort of give a little bit of that background for the listeners so they understand how bad it really was for you when you finally came to learn that you needed to go gluten-free and you finally accepted that? Absolutely. My background, when I was younger, I grew up playing team sports. So through high school, I played sports like soccer and lacrosse, and uh, I did some wrestling as well. But as I transitioned into college, I really fell in love with outdoor adventure sports. So I got into backcountry skiing, rock and ice climbing, and an outdoor active lifestyle really defined me as a person. 
and that's what I pursued passionately for a long time. And then, you know, retrospectively, I can't really pick a definitive event where things changed, but I started to get really sick, and it was 2005 and 2006 for me were really, really bad years. And so I, I went from being a very fit, a very active athlete who was able to do a lot of things, either on the playing field or in the mountains, to, as you said, being barely able to manage a mile-and-a-half run on flat pavement in my neighborhood. That was a real challenge for me, and it was a, a very tough place to be knowing where I had been and kind of how far I had fallen in terms of my health and, and my athleticism. And so it was seeing a new uh, a holistic doctor in Colorado in early 2007 who pegged it from my very first visit. And I remember him looking at me very squarely and saying, your problem is gluten. And like a lot of people at the time, I really had never heard of that word before. It was foreign to me. And I didn't fully appreciate what he was telling me. And it wasn't until a couple of months later where I still had uh, some serious symptoms that I went strictly gluten-free. And from the moment that I did that, within two weeks, I was better than I had felt in several years. I remember sitting in the living room in our house in Colorado with my wife, Kelly, and calling it a deafening silence that my body was so absent of symptoms that it was conspicuously noticeable. And from that point forward, so now it's been five and a half years, uh, it, it first was a matter of regaining my health and regaining my fitness, and now I'm at the point where my athletic fitness and my athletic accomplishments far surpass any peak I had achieved as a younger athlete before I got sick. And I couldn't have gotten to the place I am now without first getting a doctor to help me out and then going gluten-free and regaining my health. So I understand what you're talking about. You know, when a doctor finally just says, you know, you need to go gluten-free, your problem is gluten, and sort of saying, you know, obviously we've never lived in this world before of your diet controlling your life in that fashion and saying how could that possibly be that important and how could how could a change like that, you know, not eating my favorite pizza anymore, how how is that really going to going to, you know, fix me and not getting that. I think everybody sort of goes through that. Are you serious? I don't need a prescription. How could that possibly be? But when you finally own that and take it on, you're right. It's the deafening silence is a great way to describe it because your body was screaming at you before. Absolutely. Wow, that's great. And I think, you know, I have researched a lot of other athletes that have gone gluten-free and for various reasons, and I think your story is um, really closely aligned to two athletes. And I, my mind goes to Jen Sir, first of all, who is the the USA um, Olympic pole vault gold medalist from this year at the London Olympics. And she almost retired after she had 10 national titles which at the time was the most of any um, active American track and field athlete because she had such bad leg cramps. She had dehydration that was unfixable, and she was so fatigued, which is one of the descriptions that you had in, in your book about your just level of fatigue. And when she finally was diagnosed with celiac disease, she you know, rebounded and, just like you, you know, actually was now at the height of her game. Everyone thought she was maybe the height of her game before. No, now she is because she just won, you know, the Olympic pole vault contest in um, in London. So I think that's really similar. And also Novak Djokovic, the uh, U.S. Open Wimbledon, you know, champion, Australian Open, has four Grand Slam titles. And he had really sort of plateaued in his career as well. And then when he realized he had a gluten sensitivity, he has, you know, been elevated to the most dominant athlete in the world, you know, from Sports Illustrated. And um, I'm not sure if he was actually diagnosed with celiac or gluten sensitivity, but I think a lot of these trainers have the same 
um, you know, the trainers are really actually where they're getting their diagnosis in a lot of ways because the trainer's working with them trying to figure out what's going on. And maybe they would never have found out that they had a gluten sensitivity or celiac disease if they hadn't been pushing their bodies to the level that they're pushing them, which you were as well, and they're just so desperate for answers. Maybe they would have. I don't know. Do you have an opinion about that? Well, you know, I can tell you based on my experience, for the book, The Gluten-Free Edge, I interviewed uh, between my co-author, Melissa, and I, we interviewed about 45 different athletes. Some of them were recreational athletes, but I also talked to a lot of Olympians, elite professionals, uh, world champions in their respective sports, and collegiate athletes, and a, a frequent trend started to emerge where it seemed like for a lot of these athletes, whether it was celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, that for them, the gluten intolerance turned on at some specific point in their athletic career. And for many mm-hmm. of them, it seemed to happen at one of two points in time, either when they made the transition from high school to collegiate athletics or mm-hmm. when they made the transition as an adult from amateur to elite or pro status. And I think right. what ends up happening is you have this chronic history of carbo-loading on wheat products and a lot of gluten, and also you have this big increase in competitive level and training load where you're putting your body through that much more, whether you go from high school to college sports if you're playing D1, D2, D3, uh, or you go from being an amateur to be committing to being a pro in your, in your sport, that that increase in training load is enough to stress the body and turn on the sensitivity or to turn on the celiac disease where it may have been dormant before that. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's that aspect where athletes who may not have had a sensitivity beforehand do now. Or you might have uh, a sensitivity that's only around for a short period of time. And uh, the cyclist in the Tour de France is a good example of that, where um, I interviewed Dr. Alan Lim. He's a sports physiologist, and he's worked with the Garmin team and Team Radio Shack, and now he's doing some other stuff as well. Um, and he's worked with these teams, and he's coached some of the cyclists who have gone on the gluten-free diet. And what he finds in an event like the Tour de France is that those cyclists are pushing their body so hard every day that their digestive system or their gut is under duress, and their immune system is being suppressed on a day-to-day basis because of the physical output. And what he finds then is that they're sensitive to gluten for the period of time that they're in high-intensity competition. Maybe in the off-season they don't have any problem whatsoever, but they find that when they're pushing their body to the limit, they don't have the capacity to tolerate the inflammatory effect of gluten that otherwise might not cause a problem for them. That's fascinating. I mean, that, it's really amazing that, you know, they sort of, we've come this far in the world of gluten-free that, that there are doctors and trainers who are realizing this about people's bodies who maybe, like you say, don't even really technically have a sensitivity to gluten. And and I wonder, you know, it opens kind of the larger issue of, you know, the the food that we are carbo-loading today as athletes and just as an ordinary citizens. Um, that food does not have a lot in common with the food of, you know, 10,000 years ago or even 200 years ago. We have made so many modifications genetically and otherwise to our foods that they're so different from the way, you know, God intended, so to speak, that, you know, it's amazing what we are rejecting now, what our bodies are truly rejecting about our food, and that sort of speaks volumes about, you know, what we really ought to be eating in general. I mean, the gluten content, for example, of bread or pasta nowadays is so much higher than it ever was because it's been modified in the food system, you know, that we have today that's all geared towards um, mass production and manufacturing. It's been modified. And so it's, you know, several times higher gluten 
content in your loaf of bread that or your pasta that you might be eating um, before a race that your body just maybe can't handle that. Yeah, and, you know, I, I always I hesitate to make global uh, proclamations. You know, I, I find, especially with the different athletes that I interviewed for the book, that a lot of this comes down to individual biology. I, you know, you can't promise that for every person going gluten-free is going to result in the same increase in athletic performance. But th- there's no doubt that the gluten and the wheat that we're eating today is different than it was 50, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, as you say, 10,000 years ago. Um, not just in the quantity of gluten, but in the type of gluten that we're consuming, um, particularly the ones that are toxic to people with celiac disease, that we're finding that those have been expressed more in the more recent wheat, um, whether that's by design or whether it's just a, a secondary side effect of where wheat genetics uh, and wheat breeding has gone, that we're finding that there's higher levels of toxicity now than there used to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, just talking about the Tour de France and uh, and the Garmin team, for example, you know, that whole team went gluten-free largely at the advice of their training staff and perhaps as a result of, of working with this doctor that you interviewed for the book. But, you know, when you break it down in their team, like as you say, they each respond differently. Julian Dean, one of the members of the team, learned he was wheat allergic. So, yeah, he's a no-brainer. He's going to be gluten-free all the time. But Christian Vandeveld, um, was not diagnosed with gluten intolerance. He was simply put on the diet by the trainer because he's on the team. And he has described in the media experiencing a marked change for the better and going on the diet. And I guess he started in 2009, and he has more energy, and he felt you know, fresh mentally and physically. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the other people on the team are experiencing the same results, which is exactly what you're saying, that you know it can really affect people differently. But the trainers, and, and I'm not sure if you've um, – it sounds like this one doctor was alluding to it, but I'm sure you talk to other trainers who believe that the wheat and the gluten cause an inflammatory response, that for an athlete in particular, it's harder for them to rebound the next day, especially in something like the Tour de France where they're you know cycling for these many, many days in a row, that it's harder for them to rebound when their body is having these inflammatory responses. Sure. I mean, inflammation is... It, you know, in one respect, inflammation is a good thing. It's your body dealing with its own tissue injury. Um, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, too much inflammation or chronic inflammation isn't a good thing. It impairs performance. And so athletes look to, to very proactively manage that inflammation. And so if they're getting an additional source of inflammation through the food that they're eating, by eliminating those trigger foods and reducing the inflammation, they can hopefully improve their athletic performance. And that was one of the ideas behind someone like the, the Garmin team going gluten-free when they did. Well, and one of the chapters of your book really intrigues me. The title of this chapter is Why All Athletes Should Care About Gluten. And I have a feeling that you're alluding to that in this chapter. Can you explain? Sure. Well, that chapter really walks through very discreetly a couple of different ways in which gluten impacts the human body and what implications that has for an athlete. And so we look at things like impaired digestion and nutrient absorption or uh, leaky gut, gluten toxicity, inflammation, uh, a couple of different factors like that. And they have implications for both. You know, the book, if I just back myself up, you know, the book really addresses two different audiences of athletes. On the one hand, we have folks who are gluten-free and they're athletes. So they have celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity or a wheat allergy. And so they have to be gluten-free for medical reasons, but they want to actively participate in their sport or they want to live an active lifestyle. So there's that group of folks. But then there's the folks who are, quote-unquote, healthy people 
who are curious about voluntarily going gluten-free in order to get that little extra performance benefit. And so the chapter, Why All Athletes Should Care About Gluten, that section really addresses both audiences. And so with those different factors like the inflammation or the impaired digestion or leaky gut and gluten toxicity, that those things will affect both sets of athletes. But the degree to which you're impacted by those factors is going to vary. If you're a really sensitive celiac, you may have a really serious response. But if you're a healthy athlete who doesn't have a diagnosed sensitivity to gluten, well, you might not experience the inflammation to the degree of someone with celiac disease. Uh, and so that's why I say it comes back down to individual biology. But these are still things that could potentially impact an athlete, whether you're, you're healthy or not, diagnosed or not. And so you need to be aware of these things. Uh, Dr. Alan Lim, the, the same guy from the Tour de France who I mentioned earlier, calls it Pascal's wager that by going gluten-free, you don't really have anything to lose. You can still get all the nutrients you need. You can still have plenty of choices for carbohydrates. But you do have something to potentially gain, and you're not necessarily going to know that unless you try it and you commit to it for a period of time and see how your body responds to it. And so that's what he calls Pascal's wager. That's an interesting description. And I you know, I think what's also really interesting is for the rest of, of society, maybe people who don't you know, have the uh, need to be as – as um, elite of an athlete as some of the people that you interviewed in your book, you know, it's the same thing for them. You know, it they could feel better on a gluten-free diet or they could not, but they're never going to know until they try it. And that's when so many people, you know, talk about this fad diet concept of gluten-free or what have you. And it, it doesn't really matter why you're trying it. There's still a subsection of people who try the gluten-free diet for whatever reason, maybe because they're athletes, maybe because they think they're going to lose weight, you know, which would be, um, erroneous, but that's you know what some people think. But if they feel better when they're on it, because everybody's body responds differently, then they have their answer, so to speak. I noticed that one of the things you said in your book was you know you weren't going to go back on gluten in order to get the test for celiac disease, and so many people say that you know the same thing. You know, do you have to have a diagnosis of celiac disease in order to you know want to? adhere to a gluten-free diet and to, and to, you know, do that for your body. And I think everyone has to make that decision for themselves. But obviously, you know, you've made a decision that was right for your body. Yeah, but, you know, it's a tricky thing because, you know, as you say, the, the conventional advice is if you suspect that you have a gluten intolerance, that go get tested first. And, and it's good advice. If you have celiac disease, if you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity or an anaphylactic wheat allergy, whatever the case may be, uh, you, you want to know that. And there are a variety of reasons why you would want to know that. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of people are voluntarily opting for the gluten-free diet. And if they feel better on it, a lot of times that's enough feedback for them and so they don't need to go through the added step of the diagnosis. So it, it's a little bit of a push-pull between getting tested first and <laughs> wanting to figure out if there's something there or just trying it and see how you feel, see how you perform on the playing field or on the race course, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, if the results are good, that's enough for you. Right. I, I agree with you 100%. And I think, you know, what I always tell people is it's truly up to you. It's not up to your doctor or anyone else because you're the one having to do it. And because you don't need a prescription, you don't actually have to have the diagnosis. But for some people, they need the diagnosis in order to, to you know, mentally, you know, wrap their heads around the fact that this is a lifelong, um, you know, lifestyle change. But certainly for an athlete, if you're starting to perform better, I think nothing you want nothing more as an athlete than to be at your best and to have peak performance. And so if gluten-free diet does that for you, I'm sure you're going to stick to it at least while you're, you know, on the field, so to speak. Um, you mentioned, yeah, 
you mentioned carbo loading earlier, which is a huge, you know, piece for for athletes. And and historically, you know, even you carbo load the night before the race or what have you by eating a big, huge bowl of pasta or something like that. As an athlete, you know, how, how do you recommend carbo loading, or do you say that you don't need carbo loading? What What are your thoughts on that? If you're living gluten free, or at least training gluten free. Well, there's a lot of ways to answer that question. I mean, on the on the one hand, the degree to which you may or may not want to carbo load depends a bit on your sport and, mm-hmm. and what your energy demands are. Yeah, for me as an ultra marathon runner. Uh, I rely a little bit – the carbohydrates for me are still really important, but I rely a little bit less on them and a little bit more on healthy fats as a source of energy. Um, Whereas if you're in a high-intensity sport, if you're a sprinter or if you're a 5K runner, um, a lacrosse player, a few carbohydrates may predominate as an important fuel source. But uh, when you look at the spectrum of gluten-free athletes, you find some who eat very little carbohydrates, uh, whether they're grain-free, paleo, low-carb, um, they get most of the calories that they need from healthy fats and from protein and from a small amount of carbohydrates. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you can find examples of athletes who consume up to 80% of their calories from carbohydrate sources. Uh, most folks fall somewhere in the middle of that, where uh, you might consume something like 40% carbohydrates and then 30% each fats and, and protein. Uh, and I fall a little bit more into that category. I, I like to eat something of a balanced diet uh, where my carbs, my protein, and my fats are, are relatively in equal proportions. Um, but the principle behind carbo-loading is, is sound. I mean, the idea is your body stores carbohydrate energy in your muscles and your liver as glycogen. And before a big race or before a big game, you want to have as much glycogen in your muscles as you can store. So the way you do that is by eating an excess amount of carbohydrates. You don't want to eat too much carbohydrates because once your muscles are topped off, they're topped off and your body will store excess carbohydrates as fat. But the idea is to top off your fuel tank so that you're ready to go. Uh, And so when a lot of people think about a gluten-free athlete, they're like, my gosh, well, if you can't have the pasta or the bread or the pizza or the bagels, where do you get your carbohydrates? And the answer is everywhere. I mean, whether it's gluten-free grains like rice and corn, uh, quinoa, buckwheat, millet, teff, sorghum, uh, you have... The non-grains, white potatoes, sweet potatoes, tapioca, uh, or cassava, whatever you want to call it, uh, there's such a wide variety of sources of healthy, gluten-free carbohydrates that there's really no reason why an athlete would have a concern about carb loading, even if you're gluten-free. Yeah, I think that you make a great point, too, about the fact that, you know, for different sports you need different amounts of carbs versus protein and fat. But I've been reading a lot lately about how, you know, at least for certain sports, folks have been questioning the benefit of such heavy carb loading and, like, really looking at those um, fats like you were talking about as maybe being another source. But I know a lot of athletes, especially on something like what you're doing in terms of, you know, the the long distance and, and needing to fuel up in the middle of, of your race like like um you know a bike a professional cyclist would you know when you're running a 50 mile race you have to continually be feeding yourself while you're running um there are lots of different products on the market some of which are gluten-free some of which are not but what types of products like that do you recommend for athletes that are going the distance but trying to stay gluten-free yeah, you know, there are a variety of choices these days. Um, you know, Gatorade is one of the most ubiquitous. Um, some people say that they have a reaction to Gatorade. Um, hmm. I've had some blog readers comment about that. 
Uh, you know, according to the company, they have no gluten in their products, no no wheat, barley, rye. It's uh, everything in their stuff is corn based, and so strictly speaking, they they shouldn't be having a reaction mm-hmm. to Gatorade. Um, Powerade is in the same boat, gluten free. Um, Generation You Can is is a high end product used by folks like Amy Yoder Begley. She's a 2008 U.S. Olympian, and she wrote the forward to the book. And she's mm-hmm. a big fan of their products. I use First Endurance, as do a couple of the athletes that we profiled in the book, uh, Heather Wortel, who's an Ironman triathlete, and a few others. Um, and I'm a big fan of First Endurance for the, the ultra-endurance distance sport. Um, they have a really good formulation of carbohydrates, amino acids, and electrolytes that, that I find has really improved my performance. I've been using them for this 2012 season, and I don't think I'll go back to anything else. And do you use anything like the Cliff Shots or any kind of goo or, you know, those types of products while you're um, racing where you can just give yourself a quick shot of, um, of some sugar and some carbs to keep going? I do. I use a combination of those types of products as well as regular solid foods like slices of orange and uh, a chocolate chip gluten-free cookie and things like that. But uh, the first endurance that I'm talking about, they have a whole suite of products that include an electrolyte carbohydrate drink as well as a gel, and then they also have a recovery Mm. beverage that I'm a big fan of. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I kind of use them soup to nuts for my product needs, but then I also supplement that with solid foods. When I'm running for 8 to 12 hours, it it helps to have some solid food to settle the stomach and keep things on an even keel. Wow. I I can't even imagine running for 8 to 12 hours. (laughs) um, Better you than me, Peter. Let me just put it that way. Um, I I get out there for the celiac run every every year to raise money for the University of Maryland Center for Celiac Research, and I'm feeling really good, you know, at the end of the the 5K. I'm like, woo, I did it. (laughs) I have a lot of respect for 5K runners. It's a very different thing than what I do. I ran in the... um, the inaugural Long Island Making Tracks for Celiacs 5K, which uh, Craig Pinto, who runs the Kicking for Celiac Foundation, mm-hmm. did earlier this year. He he was the event organizer. And uh, you know what I do is I, I run really long distances, but ultramarathons are inherently kind of slow. And when you're in a 5K and you're trying to be competitive in it, people are really fast. And so mm-hmm. it was a very different thing for me to experience trying to run 3.1 miles as fast as I can compared to dialing back the pace and just settling in for the long haul. So I have a lot of respect for the short distance runners too. Yeah, I'm definitely in the five to ten k range. That's that's me. I, I could never do the fifty miles uphill. No way. No. <laughs> I, I, I give you all the credit in the world for that. Um, well, in the few minutes we have left, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to explain something that I actually get questions about a lot, which is the difference between the, um, you know, the food requirements of a female versus a male athlete who is living gluten-free or training gluten-free. Is there a difference? Is that something that that um, people need to be aware of? Should they look for different products? What, you know, physiologically speaking, are their needs different, even though you're living gluten-free? Oh, sure. I mean, there are some different needs. Um, you know, my, my co-author, Melissa, would be a great one to answer this question. Two of the ones that really come to mind for me are iron and calcium, or, or maybe pulling, taking a step back, thinking about it in terms of what are the health concerns, would be mm-hmm. anemia and osteoporosis or, or some form of bone density loss. Um, that, was, that was really prevalent in a lot of the female athletes that we interviewed, from Olympians like Amy Yoder-Begley to professional skiers to triathletes, that a lot of these women prior to their diagnosis, many of them with celiac disease, but not always, were having problems with anemia and osteoporosis. And for all of them, they were able to resolve those health problems 
on a gluten-free diet. They've recovered their bone density. Their blood iron counts have come back up, uh, and their red blood cell counts have come back up. Uh, and so I think iron and calcium are two really big ones. And we do have a section in the book where we have uh, descriptions for special considerations for athletes. And one of those is if you're a female athlete. And we talk about the female athlete triad, which is a common constellation of, of symptoms that come up, um, which is often classified as disordered eating, uh, problems like the anemia and the osteoporosis of the bone density, um, and weight management issues. And those things are tricky because, on the one hand, they, they are something that affect athletes, but on the other hand, those can also simply be a symptom of something like celiac disease. You may present with the symptoms of the female athlete triad, but they could all be initiated by a problem with gluten, whether it's the mm -hmm. osteoporosis or the anemia. And so those are things that should really be front and center for a female athlete to take into consideration. Those are great points. Um, anemia was one of my symptoms from um, for having celiac disease undiagnosed for 10 years. I was very anemic, and nobody could figure out why, and um, that was one of those sort of mysterious symptoms. It's not so mysterious now that we know, but at the time it was. I'm sure for a lot of athletes that's a big problem as well. Well, um, in the minute we have left, I would like to ask you, you know, if folks want to get a copy of this great book, The Gluten-Free Edge, what's the best way to get it? And if they have questions for you, how should they follow up, by email or what's your website, some information for people to get a hold of you? Sure. The book is available everywhere books are sold. You can find that on Amazon. It should be in Barnes & Noble. Um, you can visit two different websites if you want to contact uh, the authors. Melissa McLean-Jury, my co-author, her website is glutenfreeforgood.com. Uh, I blog at No Gluten, No Problem, so the web address for that one is noglutennoproblem.blogspot.com. Uh, and so they can reach out via email, ask questions. We're always happy to uh, share what we know. And you're also Peter Bronski on Twitter, at Peter Bronski as well, right? Yes. That's Great. Right. Well, you know what? Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Congratulations on this book, this labor of love, I'm quite sure. And um, good luck with your upcoming races. Um, I will I will not be running anything like what you're running, but I will think of you <laughs> while you're running those things. <laughs> and I'm very happy that you're doing it um, with full of energy on your gluten-free diet. So thank you again so much, Peter. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.